0: Everybody, welcome to Grace Bible Church. Really fun to sing songs that that speak of the greatness of God with you, and I just appreciate it. Uh, I, I think our congregation sings so well, and it's like one of the things I look forward to the very, very most every every Sunday morning. Um, we have, just before I jump into God's Word, a, a baby dedication after this service. Uh, we'll, we'll have, you know, we'll finish up later on and... Hopefully, clear the room in five or ten minutes and then have these baby dedications if if, if you would like to stay and, and we would encourage you to do so uh, and just listen to you know people honestly just coming before the Lord and, and asking for help god's help in, in raising kids uh, it is it's a ton of fun and and it's something we we should be about supporting as a congregation. So um, know that that's coming up right after the service. Let me pray and we'll turn our attention to 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. Lord, thanks so much for a bunch of friends and, and family uh, who gather together to worship you. And and God, I pray that, that we would focus our attention on you. And I, I pray, God, as we have tried to give you glory, as we sang songs together, now we would try to give you glory as we sit under your word and and Lord we are talking as you know about forgiveness and i it, it's hard lord and so we just ask that you would help all of us myself very much included uh to do well on on this topic that, that we would be quick to forgive quick to glorify you in the extension of grace and and father you know this applies to everyone and we live in a fallen world and and people sin, and so forgiveness must be extended. I pray that we do it better as a result of this time together. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ellie Wiesel is an acclaimed author. He he was a a wonderful college professor, and he was also a a Holocaust survivor. Uh, He watched, in fact, in Auschwitz, his dad perish in that concentration camp only two weeks before the end of World War II. Uh, he he had a, a terrible, a horrific experience in Auschwitz and, and years later he wrote a poem and, and part of the poem said this, God of mercy, have no mercy on these souls, on these murderers of children. God of compassion, have no compassion on those who killed these children. Years later, after writing the poem, he wrote, I was criticized all over the world for writing this poem, but but I felt it, and I still feel it. Some persons do not deserve forgiveness, end quote. That's interesting. He he ends up, and I can understand why. I I cannot claim to relate to what a person who who endured Auschwitz or any of the other prison camps must have experienced, but but to end up with some persons do not deserve forgiveness. It, It raises the question, Where do you draw the line on forgiveness? We we all have a line, right? Where, Where do you draw the line? Where should you draw the line? Should there be a line drawn in reference to forgiveness? The reality is there's plenty of people sitting in this room right now who are struggling to forgive, wondering if they even want to forgive. Even as we've broached this subject of forgiveness, you've probably already thought of somebody in your mind that this is a struggle with. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 5 through 12 talk about forgiveness. If, if you are that person, I'm glad you're here. If, if you're not that person today, you will be tomorrow. And so you should take note. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. Paul writes, "Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, and that's a strong word, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone... Whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Here's the tension with this passage. As soon as you read it, and was, it's was true of me as well, you, you immediately, because we're kind of all gossip mongers, we're, we're like, who's this about? It's, it's a little bit juicy and like, you know, you, we're into it, right? Like, wow, like something big's gone down in the church of Corinth. I wonder who we're talking about. You, you think that. And, and I actually, I followed in with a, a lot of the, the commentators and I, I was, I was kind of getting into that and I wrote about two-thirds of a page of, of pretty well-reasoned speculations on who it was. And it, at the end of two-thirds of a page... I was still just guessing. That's what a speculation is. It, it's guessing. So, so at the end of the day, here's what we need to say about who this is. Paul didn't say who it is. Like that's, that's the deal. I, I don't know why he didn't say it. He, he might have said it because in a shame and honor culture, if he's asking for a guy to be reinstated, he's not trying to bring more shame to him as he reenters the community of faith. Maybe that's it. Maybe he just thought the principles of forgiveness were more important for readers to understand than who's being forgiven, than than the person who's being forgiven. I I really, I don't know, and we don't know. Here's what we do know. Here, Here are some important facts about this passage, just laying them out. Someone in the Corinth church had caused pain, had caused pain. To the entire congregation. I mean, that's what verse 5 says. It, it caused pain to the entire congregation. Now, if anyone has caused pain, can not caused it to me, Paul writes, but in some measure, not to be dramatic, to all of you. So, this person in the Corinthian church has caused pain to the entire congregation. That's what verse 5 says. And when Paul says, not to me, but to all of you, he's not actually saying that the guy didn't sin against him. Because in verse 10, he's going to say, I've forgiven him. Now, there's no reason for Paul to forgive him if if the guy hadn't sinned against Paul too. And so his point is, this isn't about me. This is about us. This is about us. So someone in the Corinthian church had caused pain to the entire congregation, including Paul, the person who caused the pain was punished by the majority. that's, that's code for he was put under church discipline. He's put under, he, he was expelled from the congregation, I think he 's put under some sort of church discipline. That same person has apparently repented from his sin. That's great news. Wonderful news. So he was put out of the church. he was, he was expelled, he was excommunicated and And that has had its intended result. The guy realized his sin and has repented of it. And he's already been forgiven by Paul. That's what verse 10 says. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for the sake, for your sake, in the presence of Christ. So I forgive him, and I have forgiven him. That's how we know he sinned against Paul. Paul's already said, look, this is not an issue for me. It's not an issue for me. I've already forgiven the guy. So the idea is, Paul's saying, "I want y'all to forgive him. He sinned against me too. This is don't withhold forgiveness on my account. I've already I'm I'm out ahead of you people. That's what Paul is saying. You don't need to worry about me. Forgive the person. The same person who's apparently repented of his sin has already been forgiven by Paul. And finally, Paul is encouraging the church to forgive to comfort and to reaffirm love for the repentant sinner. Verses seven and eight say all that. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Look, this is is the meat of the passage, verses seven and eight. And so we're going to drill down a little bit, just to make sure that God gives us enough time to establish a little bit of conviction here, I want to, I want to highlight these three words, forgive, comfort, and reaffirming of love. Okay, so that, that's what we're going to do real quick. The word forgive, charizomai. Charizomai. It means to pardon or to remit a sin. Now, charizomai is the same word in its root as charis, which is grace. Charis, where we get the word charity, it means unmerited or undeserved favor. Here's what this means, and please hear this. To forgive somebody is to understand the cherish of God that we might extend it to somebody else. That the cherish of God, the grace of God enables us, that the same grace that saves us enables us to be forgiving. It's, it's the same. It comes down. It changes us that we might extend it to other people. So, so when it says, forgive this person, it, it's extend grace to this person. That's what it means to forgive. It's incredible. Now, the word comfort is parakaleo. And if you've been here for a while, you know it's like one of my favorite Greek words. I've, I've been talking about it for years. Y'all should be able to preach this sermon at this point if you've been here for years. Parakaleo means to call from alongside. Para, alongside, kaleo, to call. It's translated comfort. We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It, it's not like comfort, like, oh, everything's fine. That, sometimes God says that. Sometimes we should say that. That's not what he's talking about here. It's, it's not a duvet cover. It's not what we're talking about here. It's more like, hey, you've been down, you've been out, but you've repented. Now you're back on your feet and the kingdom is this way and we're going to move toward God's kingdom purposes together. We can do this. You can do this. I'm going to be right with you. Who are you doing that with? That's a wonderful extension of grace. Who, who can you come alongside who, who's been a bit of a mess but is trying to get their lives back and they, They've repented of their sins. They, they're wondering if they will be received back into a Christian community. Who can you come alongside and say, why don't you come to church with me? Why don't we get involved together? Why don't we figure out what your spiritual gifts are so that you might be a participant in the kingdom? You're not out of the game. You're back in the game. We're in it together. Who can you do that with? That's when Christianity gets fun, y'all. That... It fires me up. That is what it means to comfort somebody. We can do this. We will do this. Let's do it together. And then finally, Paul calls them to reaffirm their love for the sinner who hurt them. Reaffirm, the Greek word could be confirm as well. Confirm your love for him. This isn't just talk, it's it's, reaffirm your love. It, it's, it feels like an emotional platitude. We still love you. I, I think it's important to say that out loud. I say it all the time to a lot of different people. But I think there's more going on here. This, this is an action. It, it's, it's not just a statement. It's, it's walking alongside of them. Like, we are with you. We are committed to you. You, you are back. You, you were a part you repented, and now you're welcome back. You are my brother. You are my sister. I'm so glad you're here. Come over for dinner. Come over for lunch. Let's not just put you in the corner with a little dunce hat on. Let's actually get back into real relationship and ministry together. So that's what's going on in this passage. It's it's only six verses. It's not that hard. Let me ask you, I think, the best question we can ask on this passage. Okay? I'm going to kind of toot my own horn. I think this is a really good question. Why do you think Paul needs to write a whole paragraph on forgiveness for the church in Corinth? Think about that. Why? I mean, couldn't he just say, hey, y'all should forgive him? Like, figure it out. He goes pretty granular here, right? I mean, he kind of does a deep dive. Here are the specific things you need to do. Here's, you know, Satan's going to try to oppose this. Don't let Satan outwit you. That's verse 11. We're not ignorant of his designs. He wants to keep you separate. Um, We don't want to do that. Like There's a lot going on in this passage. Why does Paul go so granular? Before I answer that, let me just stir the pot a little bit more. Paul, who's writing this, saying, hey, you've got to forgive this guy. He sinned. He hurt everyone. He was out. He's repented. Now he's back in. I want you to let him back in. This is a guy, this Paul guy, is the same guy who encouraged the Corinthians to expel an immoral brother. First Corinthians chapter five, there's a guy, and this is kind of gross, but he's sleeping with his father's wife. I think it's probably his stepmom. That's pretty nasty. I mean that that's it's pretty depraved. And and the Corinthian church is, is kind of starting to think, well, we're so gracious, we're gonna to tolerate that. And Paul's like, nope. Kick him out. Expel the immoral brother. So so the same guy who is saying, expel the immoral brother, is also saying, reinstate this guy, and we're just speculating here. This is a couple of kids just Throwing ideas on the wall, see, you know, see if the spaghetti sticks, could be the same guy. We could be talking about the guy who is in an incestuous relationship. Woo! Man, that's, that's crazy stuff. Like, I'm glad we dismissed the kids. Why would he say both? Why would he say, expel the immoral brother and then reinstate the immoral brother? Especially for a guy who's been accused of flip-flopping on issues. Why would he do that? Here's why. Churches are often kind of like a drunk on a donkey. Have you ever had the pleasure of watching a drunk on a donkey? (laughs) There's nothing better, y'all. They're teetering and tottering, and you're like, whoa, whoa. You just never know what's going to happen with a drunk on a donkey. Here's what I mean by that. Some churches, by not holding people accountable, allow people to fall off on the left side of the donkey. And, and here's, here's how we do that we, we say, you know what, we're so gracious, we're so non judgmental, that we're, we're going to let people do whatever they want. That, that's how gracious we are. We've totally abused grace there. Just God's grace, hear me was never meant to excuse sin. God's grace, the grace that forgives us of our sin, also empowers us to resist the temptation to sin. It's an enabling grace. And so when Jesus mounted the cross, he didn't look upon all those who would be saved and say, Lord, what a great thing. I've enabled them to sin without consequence. That, That was not what he said to God. The blood of Christ washes our sins away, but the Holy Spirit comes in us and makes us new creations in Christ set apart for holiness, set apart for ministry. The grace that forgives us enables us. And so some churches don't hold people accountable, don't, don't call people to holiness, they, they call it grace, it's not grace. And their churches are full of hypocrites. And, and the people out there look at the people in here and go, why would I want to be in there? They look just like us. There's no distinction. So that's, that's how a drunk falls off the left side of the donkey by failing to forgive, by, by failing to forgive someone who has repented of their sin. They, they were kicked out of the church and then they repent and the church says, we're done with you. That, that's falling off the right side of the donkey. That's the notion that we're just too good for the repenter. That, that is holier than thou. And here's, here's what you need to remember. Holier than thou isn't actually holy. In fact, holier than thou and someone who is self-righteous and saying, we're too good for you, even though you've repented, even though the blood of Christ has washed that sin away, even though the Spirit of God has brought you to conviction that you would repent You're not good enough for us. You might be good enough for God, but you're not good enough for us. That is a self-righteousness that is as devastating a sin as whatever it was that got that guy kicked out. And, And so, I just want you to know that churches need to be willing to kick people out if they are engaged in willful, ongoing, and unrepentant sin, and then churches need to be delighted when those people repent and are reinstated. It's, both are true. Years ago, we received at Grace Bible Church, this was back when we were in the movie theater, uh, a fallen pastor, a, a guy who had been a pretty successful pastor of a church in a different town and he had had a moral failure and he was out of their church and he was out of the church in general and a couple of years later he he repented and it was a genuine repentance and he he decided i want to re-enter evangelical christianity uh, and i want to do it in a, a way that is kind of below the radar and we were meeting in a movie theater which was the definition of below the radar and so he he came to me and he's like hey can i start coming to your church And I was like, okay, let's run the traps. Let's make sure his repentance is genuine. Let's make sure that he went back to his old church and has expressed his repentance and all all that kind of stuff. And he had. And so we received him back into our church. My experience tells me that people get kind of upset in the rare occasions that we have put people under church discipline. It's it's only happened, I mean, a, a few times. But when it happens, it upsets people. But not anything like when you start trying to reinstate somebody. Because I got letters, ugly letters, from people in churches as far away as St. Louis, Missouri. I mean, people were like, how could you let that wolf in sheep's clothing back in? Like, he... He has hurt us. He he has done all of these horrible things. And you're acting like his sin didn't matter. We're just trying to stay on top of the donkey. That's all it is. We're going to take sin seriously. And when it's repented, like the prodigal's father, who sees the prodigal coming on the horizon, he jumps out of his chair and he runs off his porch. He's, He's tearing off across the field. To throw his arms around his son who, who stinks, but he's repented. We're just trying to stay on top of the donkey. I haven't answered the question. I, I started with this great question, why do you think Paul needs to write a paragraph on forgiveness to the church in Corinth? And then I went off into this diatribe about Paul did both. He, he put people under discipline and then he welcomed people out of discipline back into fellowship, and and I haven't answered the question. Why do you think he needs to write a paragraph? Ultimately, it's because God's plan for discipline is always restorative. It's never punitive. That's why he writes this. God's plan for discipline is always restorative, and it's never punitive. You put someone under discipline for the same reason you reinstate someone. the, The reason you put someone under discipline is because you want him restored. The the reason you bring someone back from discipline is because he gets to be restored. Now, you might be asking yourself, how is kicking someone out restorative? I mean, that feels kind of, it doesn't feel restorative. You're like, you can't come anymore. (laughs) It's a fair question. That person who is engaged in willful and ongoing sin, unrepentant sin is using the comforts of life within the body of Christ as a means of of refusing to acknowledge that he is alienated from the God of his salvation. So he's taking communion, he's he's engaging in fellowship, he's sitting under the word of God, and, and he's acting like the things that he is doing in private don't matter. And, and so he is by his own willful disobedience, alienating himself from God and we're enabling it. And, and we don't want to enable it because we want to restore him. But but in order to restore him, we have to say, look, we're going to put you in a physical position that matches your spiritual condition because of your unrepentant sin so that you might repent, so that you might come back, so that we might embrace you. So it's it's a loving thing. It, we're not trying... To to get back at him because he's hurt us, we're trying to show him how much we love him, how much God loves him, and how precarious his unrepentant sin is. That's the first answer. The, The reason Paul writes a full paragraph on forgiveness to the church in Corinth is because he wants people to understand that God's plan for discipline is always restorative, it's never punitive. That's kind of a corporate answer. That, that's like the organization of church. That, that's their answer. The, the church is full of individuals. Like we are individual people with individual feelings. And the second answer speaks to the individual. Why do you think Paul needs to write a paragraph on forgiveness? The answer is found in verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, there it is. See, the reality is, sinners cause pain. When when people sin against you, they hurt you. And here's something that we should just acknowledge right off the bat, y'all. Forgiveness is not natural. You, You do not forgive people because your flesh desires it. That's what I mean by not natural. It's it's something that is supernaturally enabled. Forgiveness doesn't come naturally. And and here's the other part of this that I, I think we should acknowledge. The pain that we experience because of other people's sin normally causes skepticism. Skepticism. Sometimes justifiably so. So what I mean by skepticism is you don't want to trust that person. Like You don't want to believe that person. You're you're like, okay, that person hurt me. Now maybe he or she is saying they're sorry. I don't believe them. I don't believe them. Because you still feel the pain of their sin. And you don't want to believe them. That's what skepticism is. They've hurt me once. Why wouldn't they want to hurt me again? Here's the deal. Skepticism isn't your forgiveness loophole. Okay, so I get that you might not trust them. I, I get that by forgiving them, you in some way are are opening yourself up to to further hurt. I, I get that. But God doesn't say forgive them when you trust them. He says restore the repentance. The guy says he's repentant, and you know. Let them back in. It doesn't mean you totally trust them yet. That's not like everything's going to be same, same, like all like it was, but, but your posture to them is we love you, we celebrate the fact that God brought you to a place of conviction where you would repent of your sin and, and we welcome you back into our individual lives. Here's, here's what I think will help if you Remember? The pain you experience from other people's sin is actually an opportunity to expand your capacity to forgive. The pain you experience from other people's sin is an opportunity for you to expand your capacity to extend the grace that you have received. Okay, so you got to understand that the pain that you feel that holds you in a skeptical posture, God wants you to understand the power of his grace given to you so that you can extend that same grace to the people who have hurt you and be used by God in the process. But, but that's the deal. You can either be rooted in your own skepticism. Well, I'm not going to forgive them. They're dead to me. Or you can, by an act of the will, choose to forgive and move toward. and it's not easy. It's not easy. But God is found in the endeavor. And I, I know some of you are, are sitting there going, "That might be true generally, but it's not true of me specifically with this one person or in this one circumstance. I want to tell you, I want to conclude with a story about Corrie Ten Boom, and it's a, a story that I read out of her book, The Hiding Place. And I'm just going to read it for you. In The Hiding Place, Corrie Ten Boom recalls speaking at a church in Germany after World War II and after her time in, in a prison camp called Ravensbrück. And it's it's the concentration camp in which her sister Betsy died, and it's also the concentration camp in which she and all the other women there suffered Horrible indignities. Uh, this this time that she is speaking in this church in Germany uh, afterwards, and it's a good bit after her time in Ravensbrück, It's her first time back in Germany. She had spoken. Corey Tinboom, as as a Holocaust survivor, had spoken all over the world about the merits of forgiveness. She was a, a Christian from a Christian family, and and her family was thrown into the prison camp or in the concentration camp because they had aided Jews in escaping the Nazis, and they got caught. And so she is, from a Christian's perspective, talking about forgiveness. And it's her first return to Germany, and and as I said, she didn't want to go. She didn't want to go. Talking about forgiveness is always easier than actually forgiving. I have found that to be true in my life. Not that I'm anything like Corrie Ten Boom. (laughs) After the church service in Munich... She came face to face with one of her former concentration camp guards. She recognized him. As the man stands before her, the the memories all start coming back. The the piles of dresses on the floor, walking past the camp guards naked. And the face of the severely emaciated Betsy, her beloved sister, who died in Ravensbrook on December 16, 1944. So all of it is coming back as she walks Past this man. Corey recognizes the guard, but he does not remember her. He says, Fräulein, I became a Christian after the war. Your message about forgiveness touches me very much. You told about Camp Ravensbrook. I was a guard there. I've always wanted to ask forgiveness of someone personally, so I ask you, will you forgive me? Corey recounts in her book, it feels like my blood is freezing. There suddenly stands a man before me, co responsible for the slow, horrible death of my dear Betsy, and he dares to ask forgiveness. All those beautiful sermons about forgiveness, but now I have to forgive and I can't. The man holds out his hand to Corey, but she won't take it. She says, I pray softly to Jesus, I don't want this. You have to help me. Then I realize forgiveness is not an emotion. It's an act of the will. The feeling is not there, but I can move my hand. Almost mechanically, I place my hand in his. And then something extraordinary happens. She continues, I suddenly feel a warm wave through my body, from my shoulder, through my arm, to our hands. I have to cry. I forgive you, brother, with all of my heart. There we stood, the camp guard and the prisoner. For a long time we held hands, and never before have I experienced the love of God so deeply. I just want to finish with this. Will will you be like Ellie We Sell? And and will you ask the God of mercy to have no mercy? Or will you be like Corey Tinboom and ask the God of mercy to give you by his grace, by his enabling grace and mercy, that you might extend it to others in forgiveness? Because those are your options. And there's really only two. You can kind of fake around forgiveness. And maybe you're so good at it that you'll fool other people. Maybe you can. But you'll live a slave to bitterness. That is Satan's design. Like Satan wins... If that's where you are, look, what's the difference between Ellie Wiesel and Corey Tinboom? I promise you, Corey Tinboom would say, it's not about me being better or more spiritual. Corey Tinboom would say, the only difference is God's enabling grace. It, it's me knowing the mercy and the grace of God to me. Which actually is the only thing that enabled me to put my hand out. Put your hand out. See what God does. Let's pray. Father, please. I. I know this is hard. I know it personally. But please enable us, empower us, whatever you have to do to us, that we might reflect your purposes in forgiveness. Father, please, may that be true of us and that by your enablement, we would glorify you. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.